Hey, it's Karen Hunter from the Karen Hunter Show on Sirius XM Urban View. Here's a highlight from today's show. Joining me, one of the dopest thinkers of our generation. She's out there um, doing a lot of things. She's a journalist, so we have a similar background, but she has created something called Our Body Politic. It's a podcast, Our Body Politic. Let me welcome the one and only Farai Shadea. Hello. Thank you, Karen. I am so glad to be with you. And, you know, just it's um, it's just great to see you flourishing, hear you flourishing. And I appreciate you asking me on. Well, listen, um, y'all, if y'all in the book writing, uh, book buying mode, The Color of Our Future, uh, you can go get that. Uh, Don't Believe the Hype. She wrote that, you know, she's, she's been out there doing some things uh, as well. No, it's my pleasure. I, I was just saying to you off mic, we should be talking more frequently. I'd um, love that. I'm gonna play, I, I was going to play this clip to start the show, um, but I didn't because we ended up having a conversation that I'm actually going to bring back with you. Uh, but let's play that clip from Liz Cheney. Our legal system functioned as it should, but our president would not accept the outcome. Among the most shameful of this committee's findings was that President Trump sat in the dining room off the Oval Office watching the violent riot at the Capitol on television. For hours, he would not issue a public statement instructing his supporters to disperse and leave the Capitol, despite urgent pleas from his White House staff and dozens of others to do so. Members of his family, his White House lawyers, Virtually all those around him knew that this simple act was critical. For hours, he would not do it. During this time, law enforcement agents were attacked and seriously injured. The Capitol was invaded, the electoral count was halted, and the lives of those in the Capitol were put at risk. In addition to being unlawful as described in our report, this was an utter moral failure and a clear dereliction of duty. Evidence of this can be seen in the testimony of President Trump's own White House counsel and several other White House witnesses. No man who would behave that way at that moment in time can ever serve in any position of authority in our nation again. He is unfit for any office. All right. Um, what should we do with this January 6th? Somebody was like, you, I can't wait to come on the show to talk about this. I'm putting very little energy into the January 6th committee, whether or not Trump's going to get arrested, whether he's going to be held accountable, because I have zero faith um, that a country whose political system was founded with you and I being uh, considered three-sixths of a human being has any uh, <laughs> chance whatsoever of actually redeeming itself. But I'm, you know, I could be wrong. Where, where do you sit? The government already had one chance with the impeachment and there were many different types of people from both parties that didn't want to deal with what it would take to impeach President Trump. And I think that that a convict is, because he was impeached twice. It, correct. Correct. He was impeached, but not convicted. Um, absolutely correct. And and I think that to to have reached a conviction in those impeachments would have set different ground. But I think it's not too late if we don't make it too late. Am I certain of anything? Absolutely not. You know, I do know that 
at this point, you know, um, uh, Benny Thompson and Liz Cheney have recommended as part of January 6th that um, there be criminal indictment by the Justice Department on the charges of obstruction of an official proceeding and conspiracy to defraud the United States. And that's for Trump and others. And so, you know, I'm, I'm never going to place bets on whether there will be consequences for someone like Donald Trump, because he has proven time and time again that he does he doesn't do consequences. But I do think that consequences are coming particularly through other forms of prosecution like, um, you know, New York State Attorney General Tish James pursuing him for financial crimes. I think those have a clearer path. And, and I don't know what to think here, except that I do think that there's been a thorough documentation, but documentation without action is still a possibility. And we'll have to see. But what's our responsibility, right? So like, um, I get why we should vote, right? I get that, especially locally. Yeah. Yes, we should get out and vote and put pressure on our, the people that we elect and then let them know it's or else like we should there should be more accountability in terms of who we yeah. give our votes to and make them not just come show up to the uh, church events right before election. But like, I need to see some things happen if I send you to Washington or I send you to the state house, et cetera. But for this, like we have a finite amount of energy. So as a person that does three hours a day, I'm like, I'm not doing this, you know, Trump well, get people all ratchet up because it's really out of our hands at this point, right? We did our job, most of us, except for the 54% of white women, didn't vote for this dude, right? So, like, we didn't vote for him twice. And, you know, we elect, you know, we got the Senate to make sure that, you know, like, we Georgia showed up. And you know, I was like, what else should we be doing as it relates to January 6th? We know what they did was an insurrection. It was traitorous and treasonous. And we know that the president actually fomented all of that and he should go to jail. But if he doesn't, what more can we do? I mean, look, I'm someone who thinks that it's better to know than not to know. And so what I have been tracking for the past couple years is, um, how movement white supremacists are working to infiltrate law enforcement. There um, uh, is a reporter, Cerise Castle, a black female investigative reporter who found um, white supremacist groups embedded in the LA Sheriff's Department. And to do that kind of reporting is really tough, especially as a black woman. And I've done reporting on extremists as a black woman. What we can do is know. So what we can do is learn about what's actually going on so that when you have those conversations at your hair parlor or your church or in the supermarket and someone's like, well, no, actually it's not a problem for me because I'm white and they're not interested in me. It's like, no, actually white, the white supremacist movement is not invested in the survival of white people as a group. They're invested in the survival of some white people, which is why I try to have tough conversations with white friends that you are not immune to the attacks that could come out of this moment Wait, in what, history. But Rai, what does that, what does that mean? Rai, what does that, what does it mean only some white people? Well, I mean, there's plenty of white people who will be viewed by movement white supremacists as race traitors who aren't sufficiently invested in 
institutional white supremacy or people who were just in the wrong place at the wrong time. Like there were plenty of white police officers who got beaten, bruised, um, some of whom later died, who were at the Capitol. Some you know? died that day. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I mean. You know, I think that there's been this kind of myth that that sort of institutional white supremacy is a problem for black and brown people, but not for everyone else. And the one thing that could move us in a positive direction is to unpack that myth. Like, you know, right now there's been these attacks, um, you know, on infrastructure. So, um, you know, there was a, an, an attack um, in the south in, in Moore County. That North Carolina on the yep, grid, right? Yep. Yeah. That was definitely linked to um, what are called accelerationists. So there's this movement within white supremacists and white nationalists called accelerationists. And they want to destroy the power and the water and all this stuff because it will accelerate the collapse of society as we know it. And then they can come in and re-architect it, or at least that's the theory. So accelerationists- so, wait, 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 Pause, wait, because I, I definitely want to go down this. You know, I remember Helter Skelter, Charles Manson, you know, cutting the baby mm -hmm. out of Sharon Tate's belly to start a race war. And I was like, how was that going? Like, and then Tim Timothy McVeigh, you know, yep. I'm a blow up this, you know, it's like, there's, there's been these iterations and, and whether it was Charleston, uh, you know, Charlottesville or Buffalo, you know, there's been these, these people with their manifestos to start what they think is a race war. How does that play out? And is this something that we should really be concerned with? I think we should be concerned, not paranoid, but certainly concerned in the sense, just understanding that all societies are built on a form of consent. You know, like I consent to live in a place that treats me some kind of way. And black people have always had a different contract of what that consent means. You know, we've given a lot in civil service, military arts, on and on and on, not always gotten a lot. and. Right now, the contract, people are trying to rewrite the contract of what American society looks like. Will they succeed or not? We'll see. I mean, they've already succeeded to a certain extent. Like it was considered unthinkable that people would have an insurrection at the Capitol, but it became thinkable and it happened. And and people knew, like I knew it was gonna happen because I paid attention to the networks of people who were in white supremacist movements. I have a friend who's a, a black woman who spent seven years undercover on white supremacist chat rooms, you know, to to learn from them as to what was going on. So we should have had better intelligence about what was going to happen because it wasn't that secret. <laughs> That's why all the people showed up because it wasn't really that secret. Um, and I think mm. that to have better intelligence is in and of itself like, whether or not you can change an entire society, you should know what the risks are to you and your family. And you should have a reasonable sense of whether or not there are active groups, you know, in your local law enforcement or trying to take down your power grid. I mean, this is just stuff to know. And and then, you know, it, it's it's hard to sometimes look these hard truths in the in the face and not feel down about it. But I think it's better to know than not to know. And also, yeah. you know, again, I'm not going down some paranoid rabbit hole, but just to have basic plans of like, if things go sideways where I live, where will I go? 
you know, am I going to go to my cousin's house? Is that house two hours away, four hours away? How am I getting there? Is my car gassed up? Do I have water in my house? These are just simple things <laughs> that, you know, um, you know, whether or not we um, are in for more political violence, which I think we will be. Um, these are just good things to know on general principles, but I think that the reason black people still exist in this country is because we've had to have a spidey sense about what's going on. And that's no different now than it was 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Mm, except some, most of us have overcome and nobody told me, as Florence would say. <laughs> uh, Farah is here. Uh, she's the creator of Our Body Politic. It is a podcast. As you're talking, I started the show eight years ago having on a bunch of preppers talking about prepping because I'm mm-hmm. like, you know, and even if I'm wrong, you're prepared for a hurricane or a yeah, natural exactly. disaster. Like, you know, worst case scenario, you got enough food and water to last you uh, in a natural disaster. But this is an, an unnatural um, setting where since uh, emancipation has been like, all right, we want y'all gone. But no, we're not leaving. So my question to you, and I've been like really doubling down on community. How do you know you're in an area where police are infiltrated by, or should we assume all police or military that people are going into it with nefarious, you know, should, should everyone be assumed guilty until no, innocent? How absolutely do we, not. How do we operate? No, people shouldn't. And I think one reason that I even got an early read on some of the things that were happening in the military is because my family's full of military. So I had, family who talked about the the problems of organized white supremacy, you know, trying to recruit people and sometimes successfully recruiting people in the military. And so, but that also means that not everyone agreed with that. And there are plenty of people who don't in military, in law enforcement. And part of it is really providing an environment where when people are willing to call out problems that they are supported, not everyone is, you know, so Um, When it comes to, you know, whether it's your local law enforcement or whether it's, you know, the military, if you have family in the military, it's it's worth finding out, like, what is the process to actually um, have oversight of who's doing what and what is, you know, what is your ability to get um, some kind of a connection with people if you find out that there is, you know, for example, like I, I again, this this investigation of the LA Sheriff's Department, like it's, it sounds like there's not a lot of accountability right now within the Sheriff's Department to deal with this. But because this reporter is out there constantly producing a string of stories, she's raising questions and other people are backing her up. So sometimes it's just on a local level. It's like, what is the means of communication? Because the reality is, you know, not everyone is in a position where they want to put themselves out as a whistleblower. Like I come from a family of military people and employment discrimination whistleblowers and just generally people who speak up about things, but that can be risky. And in some places, um, it can be very bad for your life and your family's life to be that person who speaks up. So you also need mechanisms of reporting things that can be indirect, which includes the media, you know, like telling a reporter something on background. Um, so I think it's just, you know, like I, I don't usually talk about stuff like this, but I do try to really, when I talk to people as a reporter, I try to also give them a real sense of what the consequences are of talking to me. Like this is an, you know, unrelated topic, but um, a woman was going to tell me a story about having an abortion and she just did not get that 
everyone in her family would know it. Like somehow she just didn't put the pieces. I was like, you understand your mother, who you've never told, will un will know once this comes out and that your church will know and you can still tell me but you don't seem to understand that and she was like oh yeah you're right that's not what i wanted for myself <laughs> so you know so i think that with with heavy issues like american democracy which no one person can solve it's like what is your piece of the puzzle are you the person who finds out what you know how community members can report something safely you know, about the local law enforcement? Are you the one who finds out who the members of local law enforcement who are actually responsive and listening are? You know, are you the person who knows that you can't take certain risks right now? And so you don't. I mean, I, I'm not judging people. I mean, I, I love stand up people. I come from a line of stand up people, but I also understand some of the risks involved. And so it's really about us working together, like you talk about community, working together as a community. So you have that person out front who's willing to to ask hard questions. You have an information flow that sometimes is direct and sometimes is indirect. Mm. Right. Um, you can follow her at F-A-R-A-I on Twitter. How'd you get your full first name? Well, you know, what's funny is that I originally took my full name first and last, and then I was stupid. I was, I was on from a really early time, but I realized that I should have gone for my first name. And there was a South African guy who was a technologist and he just gave it to me. He was like, oh yeah, you're doing good things with this. I'll give you Farai. Isn't wow. that amazing? That is, I'm like, how'd she get her first name? It's like Jack, you know, yep. it's like, yeah, I have to be an early adopter. No, I really to get... have to, I have to find that guy's information and check in on him. He's like a, my, cause my dad is from Zimbabwe. So it's a super mm -hmm. common name in Southern Africa. It's like the, it's like Courtney or something, gender neutral, super common. Mm -hmm. And he, and he was luckily a nice guy who gave it to me. And I was, I was lucky to have mm -hmm. it. Now, now the Twitter real estate, um, I just noticed that my Twitter followers are dropping, not, you know, precipitously, but people are leaving, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How do you, um, and what does Farai mean? It means joyful. Okay. All right. I love it. I love it. Um, in what language? Shona, which is okay. the main language right. of Zimbabwe. Yeah. Now, um, you know, the, the person that owns Twitter, who's a complete dumpster fire from, uh, <laughs> South Africa, raised in South Africa apartheid. I don't know why we would expect anything different from him. I don't, you know, and I'm not, you shouldn't, the sins of your father, but yes, the sins of your father. Absolutely. You're a product of your environment. He is acting the way I would expect somebody who was raised in apartheid to behave. That said, um, he put out a poll this, uh, yesterday, uh, and he said he would follow it. 57% of people said he should step down uh, as CEO. I hope he, uh, you know, is honorable. I don't expect him to be honorable. Um, that said, people are leaving Twitter because yeah. it's not the same. It's not, it doesn't have the same energy of flow and it feels very toxic. Uh, and, it was toxic and, before. And, and they're deplatforming journalists for just being journalists. So that's like, yes. some, that's some serious, you know, it's fascist like, yeah, behavior. Yeah, pretty much. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, but for for reporting on him, mm -hmm. you know, so the the one Rupar, I think his name, that one was really like really, uh, and then Keith Oberman, who like this is what mm -hmm. he got deplatformed, and mm -hmm. then then he came back under his dog's, uh, the, the his <laughs> rescue dog, uh, handle. Uh, so people are getting around it. Um, but yeah, there's been a lot of people de deplatformed who are just reporting with public information, like the guy with the mm -hmm. jet. 
you know, anybody can find that information. So you're deplatforming somebody, you're suspending them for putting out information that anybody has access to. How does that work? And what do we do with this space? Are you staying? I'm staying for now. I mean, I, I haven't done this in a, in like about a month, but I wiped out most of my Twitter history and I'll keep going in and like, you know, what's that process for those of us who don't know, what do we have Um, to do? So yeah, I used, I think it's called tweet delete. Let me just make sure. Um, but yeah, it's, there's a bunch of, um, a bunch of different platforms that you can use. So yeah, it's, um, yeah, tweet delete is the one I used. And it's it, the reason I use it is because it got written up and it's apparently pretty secure because you have to give this, you can delete some tweets through directly through the Twitter app, but to delete a whole bunch in mass, you usually need a, you know, like another app. And so, you know, the reality is, and why would one do that? What What is the value of deleting? Well, the short answer is I'm not sure how useful it is because probably a lot of my material has already been archived. But basically people use your Twitter feed for opposition research for any number of reasons. People who just don't like you. But what we're seeing is certainly in the U.S., people on the far right, are archiving the tweets of people they consider progressive or left, but so are China and Russia. So there's a lot of digital surveillance of people's Twitter feed to try to find some smoking gun on them that can be used in the future. And I don't think I have any smoking guns. I'm sure I have some embarrassing tweets, but it's just more like as a, just as a sense of hygiene, I just kind of make it less easy for people. You know, I don't, I'm not under the illusion this keeps my stuff locked up, but I just wouldn't leave a bunch of, I wouldn't leave a bunch of your Twitter history lying around in this era. Mm. Um, I would also make sure that you understand what your risk profile is, you know, like certainly journalists, academics, a lot of other people are finding that we have a higher digital risk profile than ever. You know, there's- What there's, does that mean? It means harassment, um, doxing, swatting, stalkers, even a lot of people with ill intent um, for different reasons and, and a lot of misogynoir. So for black women in particular, um, sexism, racism, um, ideological warfare all play into reasons that people um, or motivations for people who want to do harmful things. And, and um, you know, the International Women's Media Foundation has really done some good work on digital security. They have some online resources. There's a lot of people who have online resources. So if you have any kind of public profile, even if you don't consider it super public, I would just take a look at, you know, some of the reliable briefings on digital security and make sure that you feel good about your digital security. Mm, I, I, Chris Boozy has been on the show several times. I got mm-hmm. to see him, him and Sophia um, Noble. Uh, Noble, yes, who's been who used to you know co-host on Tech Tuesday. To see both of them in the Meghan Markle, Harry and Meghan uh, documentary, talking about yes. you know secure all of these things that we're talking about yep. right now, made me smile that they they, they highlighted black people absolutely who are in the forefront because we have the most to lose. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this fight, I think, because we're often targeted. 
So, yeah, and I just saw Sophia the other day and got to meet her son, which was wonderful, her 10-year-old. So, her, you know. Her husband is dope, too. Yes, he was there, Otis, yeah. the man. I love him. Um, yeah, because we are we are always kind of first in the line of fire, and we have to do our best to protect ourselves. I don't think that I'm as locked down as I should be, but... I'm trying and I'm spending some time on it this winter, like just over the break, like doing, you know, a digital security assessment, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's not fun, but it's, it's something we have to do, especially those of us who like information and like knowing things and like sharing what we know. Um, not everyone appreciates that. Yeah. 866 uh, top of the show, I was talking about uh, Kindred because I'm an Octavia Butler fanatic. Because I, yes, I felt like she, she, um, she saw she could see things. She could mm -hmm. she she could see into the future. And Parable of the Sower, Parable of the Talents, I feel like is a prophetic uh, tome. Also, uh, you know, everything from Make America Great Again to an authoritarian mm -hmm. leader like Donald Trump predicted 20 years before it happened. And Kindred is on Hulu. And I'm not mad at how they they put it together. And I think it's going to be a season two. It's a series. And I was asking this question because I keep contemplating how slavery even happened with a continent so rich with so many resources. How was this system able to thrive for 400 years and build empires like watching Harry and Meghan build Great Britain, this little tiny space mm -hmm. the sun never set on it on the backs of Africans, right? And you think about Portugal and Spain and all of these countries that fighting each other for centuries decided to come together and form whiteness. And it was magic. And to this day, we're still battling, even in countries uh, like Africa, still have white Santa Claus and white Jesus and skin bleaching is a multi-billion dollar industry. How sickening is that? So I was like, how did this system work? And what did it require for people to say, okay, um, I'm gonna stay in this, you know, like we, we know about some revolts in Maroonage, but there was, there were a like, lot of what? revolts, but you know, I mean, I think part not of it successful. is that, well, yeah, no, no, there were, there were not a lot that were successful and that is the power of guns, which we're still dealing with in America, you mm. know, like one of the mm. things, the rise of gun culture in America was deeply linked to organized white supremacy you know, whether it was legal or extra legal, violence against indigenous people, black people, et cetera, was also interwoven with gun culture and still is. And so I think that you just have to understand that so many people could not escape. Like if you're talking about, you know, unarmed people versus rifles, it's very hard to do that fight. And you look at places like Haiti, where you were able to have a successful, um, you know, overthrow of a colonial government, but then the global community struck back by, you know, allowing France to take this blood money of, you know, a billion dollars, a billion dollars worth of gold uh, from Haiti. And now people are like, Haiti is such a poor country. It's like, read your history. You know, Haiti was a rich country that was, that had to pay blood money to be free, you know? And so, so, so without, I mean, you know, it was about a superior technology, the technology of the gun. Also, to a certain degree on the African side, there was complicity of some tribes 
who helped people who were in the slave trade pipeline people off of the continent because Africa was not and is not a country. Not everyone got along. Some people sold out the neighboring tribes, you know, um, but overall, it's really a technology issue. So I was thinking about that, too, because like France forced Haiti to pay reparations. But I'm like, you got to show up on boats on this island. Hmm. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll pay you. Come get it. Like, OK, while you come and try to get it, we're going to have a plan. You know, it's like just like we, you know, yeah, it's like, but, I'm just, like we're but, always I'm always trying to. No, but it's the out. global. But that was it, that was that's why I said the global community, because basically Haiti as an island nation needs to have trade to survive. And basically the global community said, we will not allow any trade unless you pay this money to France. So they it wasn't- They still starved them out. They starved them of out course. anyway. I know. You're on the island. We I know. yourselves, let's go. Right, but what I'm saying is the promise was made that you will be part of the land of the free if you just pay the, you know, would they have been better off not paying? Quite possibly, but- no one knew that at the time or, you know, people people made the best choice they could. Now we know we still we know we can't trust them and we still go into Colorado and <laughs> I don't know. I'm just like there's been enough now history to know that no deal, not not the deal for New York, not the deal with the blankets. There are no deals that you can make with people who have no morality and no, when I'm talking about people, I mean a system, not individuals with, with no conscious, like, so let's stop trying and keep building. Do you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's this always like, well, if we could just get them to understand and then more of them showed up to vote for Trump the next time yeah, during a pandemic, like y'all thought he with the hydroxychloroquine, you know, and Tracy the, McMillan the caught, yeah, Tracy McMillan Cottom has a great essay about this in her book Thick, her book of essays, where she talks about going to a specific event for President Obama and realizing that even kind of embedded within this event for President Obama, when he was, I think, running for his first term, was this inability to really see black people in their wholeness and. At the same time, though, you know, as someone who has traveled to 49 of the 50 states, I want this to be a country where we have the best chance that we can have at freedom of movement, freedom of living where we want to live. We should not feel that we are restricted to one corner of America because of racism. There are realities and there are times, there are places where I would not be after sunset you know, and some of them I wouldn't be even, you know, after sunrise and before sunset. But I try to, I try to show up in this country as a free woman with mm -hmm. common sense, but I'm, I'm also not mm -hmm. trying to be locked into the, a corner of the nation that I was born in and that, you know, I've tried my best to be a good citizen in. I want to be free. And, and I, it makes me sad to think about some of my God kids and other young people I know who may not feel the freedom of move, movement. Like when I was a young reporter in the 90s, I just got my rental car. I zipped all over this country, right. interviewed all sorts of people, had all sorts of experiences. And I want that for I people. Never worried about it. 
Yeah. I'm same. I mean, I covered yeah. Jordan's father's death. I'm going into the heart of South Carolina, North Carolina, that border. I yeah. drove down there I'm in Lumberton. I'm talking to people. I never I went to Florida during the Mets spring training. Never thought about my safety. Never thought about racism. I drove from Augusta, Georgia to New York mm-hmm. in 13 and a half hours and never worried. Stopped to get gas. Never worried. And now I just drove to see my mom in North Carolina. And I was like, mm. Let me get gas in Delaware. Let me fill mm-hmm. up because I ain't trying to stop in Virginia. Yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah, yeah we've it's we've hard come so far. <laughs> no, it's it's hard to watch us. I mean, also what a, what an incredible waste of energy. You know, um, Toni Morrison wrote that the real purpose of racism is distraction, and it's it's a mm. distraction from among other things what could actually be a really beautiful, functional, magnificent country. Like we are stuck in this narrative that we all have to be, you know, um, fighting each other for the tiniest scraps when we are so prosperous as a nation and we could just be like living a good life. How about that? You know, but human, I really believe a lot of the sort of research that I've done over the past few years in terms of just what I read for myself is stuff like behavioral economics. Like basically, why do human beings do stupid things? You know, (laughs) like I want to know, like, why do we keep fighting the same battles over and over again in ways that do not enrich the world or enrich us? And so, Mm. you know, there is something to human psychology where we seem to have this wish to repeat the trauma of othering and being othered for advantage and usually for less advantage than you might think like the everyday clans person or proud boy is not really i mean they're getting an identity which is incredibly valuable like so that's really why people do it to feel useful to feel part of something but they're not really getting you know in most cases a lot of money or professional advantage the puppet masters are people like steve bannon and alex jones they're raking it in you know alex jones has finally gotten a legal sanction we'll see how much money he actually puts on the table you know once his lawyers and accountants move things around but the the people who are the puppet masters make a ton of money but most of the rank and file who are in their own construct of a race war do not actually do well based on it, right. but they feel I mean, some kind of way. So they I mean, still look, show up. This, the civil war was fought by people that didn't even own human beings. The people yeah. that own human beings didn't, couldn't bother to show up. It was people <laughs> fighting for slavery when they didn't even have any stake in it at all. But that's probably the, never yeah. would. That's the power of identity though. I mean, it's, it's, that is really like above almost anything people will fight for perceived the perceived advantage of an identity that does not even serve them ah right i'm so grateful that you're here right you need to come back i'd love to yes and thank you for being here our body politics some of this conversation is what you talk about every where can people go yep ourbodypolitic.com will show you how to how to find it and it's on all the podcatchers Hey, this is Karen Hunter. You can listen to The Karen Hunter Show live every Monday through Friday at 3 p.m. East on Sirius XM Urban View Channel 126 or anytime on the Sirius XM app.